Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started, I want to give another call out to the Cook, Eat, Learn program that we have each Friday here before Medical Grand Rounds. The, um, the work today was around vegetarian diets, eating plants, and healthy tips about uh, being a vegetarian or eating a vegetarian diet. I hope you made yourself uh, uh, more informed by looking at those things. And there was a wonderful breakfast today. Um, the, we do a trivia question that's based on last week's presentation at the Culinary Medicine Program. Last week we focused on snacks. The question was, how can you use snacks to boost nutrition? Among the myriad answers and volunteered uh, uh, items to answer that was this winner, and it was to add lots of colors to your snacks using different fruits and vegetables to increase the nutritional value. It was Jean Strawbridge. So Jean, you've won this, and here is your prize. You must come and get this. From Hurricane Flats, all organic popcorn. A healthy snack. And this popcorn you cannot microwave. You must cook it the traditional way, okay? Thank you, thank you. Okay, without further ado, I would like to introduce the introducer of today's speaker. And that's Lisa Adams, who is an associate professor of medicine in our Infectious Disease International Health section in the Department of Medicine. And she is the associate dean for global affairs at Geisel School of Medicine. Thank you, Rich, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to our second annual Global Health Medical Grand Rounds. I'm pleased to introduce to you today my colleague and friend, Dr. Elizabeth Talbot. Elizabeth is well known to many of us here at the Medical Center as an infectious disease specialist and director of our travel clinic. Elizabeth is also the deputy state epidemiologist at the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services and has presented many times in this forum to educate us about various local and regional outbreak investigations and other matters of public health concern. This morning, we're fortunate to have her here in her global health capacity to share with us her experience responding to the most infamous outbreak of late, the unprecedented Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Elizabeth is certainly well qualified to join the Ebola response effort in that region. In addition to being an infectious disease and tropical medicine expert, she has extensive experience in international and domestic disease control through conducting epidemiologic investigations, clinical projects, research, and consultations. She has participated in the writing of state, national, and international disease control guidelines and has authored more than 70 peer-reviewed publications on tuberculosis, outbreak investigation, and disease control. After receiving her medical degree from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey and completing her internal medicine and infectious disease training at Duke University, she, Elizabeth went and trained and worked at the CDC's field office in Botswana until 2003 when she came and joined the faculty at Dartmouth. Elizabeth has remained active in the global health arena while at Dartmouth through her involvement in our TB and HIV programs in places like Tanzania, Haiti, and Swaziland. But Elizabeth is not someone who studies TB, HIV, or the other diseases of poverty from the comfort of our Hanover and Lebanon offices. She is a field epidemiologist, educator, and clinician at heart. 
her keen technical skills, her understanding of health systems and care delivery, her appreciation of the importance of context, culture, and communication make her an exemplary global health practitioner who sets the standard for all of us. Last fall and again earlier this month, Elizabeth traveled to Sierra Leone as the training coordinator for the non-governmental organization International Medical Corps. We are fortunate to have her back in New Hampshire now to share with us her knowledge and insights on this profound experience responding to the epi Ebola epidemic. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Talbot. Thank you, Lisa. That was a lovely introduction. I'm almost excited to hear what I have to say. <laughs> um, and I feel I've been with you um, a few times this year, and, it, and in part it's a pleasure, and in part it, it's, it's a bit of a burden because I, like many of you, are, I'm a perfectionist and want everything to be just right, and that's just not going to happen in a fast-moving epidemic like this, especially where there's such a cascade of data coming in and, and a lot of unknowns uh, that are only speculated on. So let me get started and, and um, particularly remind you of what we um, plan to accomplish in this hour or less now. Yeah. We're going to um, embrace the opportunity to review what global health is, uh, given that this is a global health grand rounds. Um, I'd like to talk about applying uh, global health principles to this Ebola epidemic response. We'll have to review the epidemiology and just make sure we all understand where we are these days. Uh, I'm going to make multiple references to the WHO roadmap for Ebola control. Um, we need to talk about restoring health services in the region as well. Um, and and I, I'll make a brief reference to um, the new disease control tools that are coming or, or even immediately available. Um, I want to make reference also to a concept that we should be aware of within global health called One Health. And, and, and that is a way that potentially could prevent an outbreak, an epidemic, a catastrophe like the Ebola epidemic has been. So I came up with the objectives. It seems like I was asked for them even before uh, Ebola started. And, and so this was a bit of a prediction. Um, I, I really don't know where we'll finally land with regards to everything that, that I put into this um, uh, slide deck. <clears throat> I would say it's probably a reach to accomplish all those things in, in a satisfying amount of detail. But, but at least I'll make sure that I leave time at the end so that you can direct me what's interesting to you with your questions. huh? <clears throat> so global health off-discussed and poorly defined, in my opinion. Um, global health is not synonymous with public health. It's not the same thing as international health, in my opinion. <clears throat> it's not tropical medicine, which is clinical care of poverty-related disease. And it's certainly not clinical care or research that's accomplished in a resource-limited setting. It's more than that. It's a discipline, it's a specialty, uh, where there is an application of public health principles to address health problems that affect low and middle income countries. Uh, and it's the application of these public health principles to navigate a very complex array of global and local forces that influence these health problems. Think Ebola, you know, incredibly complex response. I know that you'll appreciate that globalization means that response to many public health issues, many issues that you're concerned about, um, must include attention to cross-border health, climate change, right? Of course, um, multi-drug resistant TB, my usual day job, um, which, which can't be uh, eradicated from the US while it still progresses in, in, in uh, developing countries or in, in the former Soviet Union. Pandemic flu, or again, today our example of Ebola. There are three things that a practitioner of global health sets out to do. These are the mandates. 
you must be engaged in population health to identify the health problems and priorities. Boy, did we fall short on that. Um, the Ebola epidemic uh, was recognized and prioritized very late in the process. Um, we're, we're told to formulate policies to address uh, these health problems according to seven global health principles that I'll describe to you. And again, we're going to go to that roadmap, the WHO roadmap for Ebola control, and ask um, how, how closely does it ally with, with these seven global health principles. And the third mandate is to assure that all populations have access to appropriate and cost-effective care. Um, this is not just pills to people, um, but indeed health promotion and disease prevention activities as well. Um, there's a tremendous need and challenge for this within um, Ebola virus control. So these seven principles, I, I show them over two slides, and then I'll condense them a bit as we try to check them off, so to speak, with regards to the Ebola response. So number one for effective global health engagement is to address gender-related inequalities and disparities that disproportionately compromise the health of women and girls. So that may be a surprise to you, but, but clearly the data suggests that um, your, your intervention is more effective um, when, when you, do, you do take uh, the, 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 the issues around women and children, uh, girls, um, uh, aggressively. So the second mandate is, is, is probably anticipated, though. Create sustainable country-owned health systems. Three, strengthen health systems, and, and this is used intentionally as a phrase within um, global health that encompasses these things. Yes, health service delivery, uh, improvement, uh, increase of the health workforce, strategic information and, and, and information sharing stuff, uh, financing the stuff and the people and the places, and then leadership and governance. So this is what's referred to within the parlance of um, health system strengthening within global health. You must promote partnerships, really important within Ebola too, we'll talk about that. Um, five, promote integration. Uh, different health activities should be incorporated within the health sector of governmental activities. So that's the reference, for example, to health promotion and psychosocial support during an Ebola crisis. Um, and then integrating different health activities across other governmental sectors, such as making sure that everybody has the same standard information about Ebola control, even in the education sector, in the food security sector, agricultural, et cetera. Um, number six, make sure you research and innovate while you're doing your global health activity, and then monitor and evaluate. So those are the seven. I've um, condensed them somewhat without those explanations into this one slide. Um, and elected not the pink and purple Ebola virus that you see so often, just for, just for the placeholder. So when you see this circle, you, you know we're coming back to ask the question, have we hit the seven principles here with what we're discussing? Um, I'll start by saying um, these two I'll weave throughout and not make a specific example for them, and I hope that you'll trust me. So we've just knocked off two in like three seconds. All right, so let's get started. How do we get there? Let's all get on that same page first. Let's, let's remind, I know that I spoke with you about this um, in, in a group forum and, and several other meetings as well, but um, let's just make sure we have the same current information. Um, this whoa little box here, December 6th was the first case. The two-year-old child in Gekadu, Guinea, who was known to be patient zero, so to speak, and uh, disseminated uh, across the region through the activities of care and um, the funeral for this child. Yet the global uh, timeline really starts in July when people started paying attention to what was going on. So um, August 4th uh, is, is the first solid monitoring and evaluation um, where we start to count cases as 
Um, I give these numbers. I want you to appreciate um, there's not crying wolf here, but, but the most modest uh, inflation that you should have in your mind around these reporting numbers is 2.5. So, so that's to say if there's 1,000 cases reported to WHO, there's probably 2,500. And in fact, probably a lot more. But, but this, is, this is the standard um, correction factor for these cases. But these are what's reported. Um, it was then that the World Health Organization declared the public health emergency of international concern. So first case December, um, the emergency was declared on August 8th, which freed up resources and opportunities for, for a more coordinated international response. The cases marched on um, through August, through September, and, and look what's happening now by October, from, from uh, 1,700 cases to 13,000 cases in just a few months. And this was when we were all very concerned about um, where, where, where this epidemic curve was heading, right? I mean, we, we still are, but, but we've turned a corner. While these cases are going in, in, the, in the spirit of globalization, of course, um, we start to see cases in other countries. Um, so Nigeria, Senegal, the US, how infamous, uh, the Spanish nurse who acquired disease in Spain, um, and then uh, transmitted into Mali disease. Um, so we move on to November. Um, we're still seeing an increase in cases. In December, we, we, we have now recognized introduction to the UK, um, 20,000 cases by New Year's. Uh, and, and January 28th data, we're in nine countries. And in the most recent reporting week, February 22nd, total cases, 23,000, uh, 9,500 deaths in nine countries. So there's a lot of speculation. How did this happen? You know, there are times where I just have the feeling of, you know, surreal. This is this is not. Nobody saw this coming. Um, and 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 why did it happen? Um, most to the purpose, to the to the end of what can we do to prevent this from happening again, or how do we get it under control? Um, not just to point fingers, please. Um, and and there are lots of different root cause analyses out there, and coming um, lots of analysis. But this one I thought um, was interesting from the Global Health Policy Center recently. Um, just describes in in a coherent march through how exceptionally weak the in-country health capacities were, um, ability to respond to or identify and respond to epidemics. Uh, infection control was non-existent. And I make eye contact with Antonia and her team. Um, <laughs> and, and the fact that, yeah, let's call it what it was, and in some cases what it is, an ineffective international emergency response in spite of the August 8th declaration. Um, in fact, World Health Organization has, has also taken a bit of a black eye, like CDC, I think, um, with regards to limited operational capacities and a greatly depleted leadership uh, in, in Geneva and certainly in the field. We recognize that there's corruption and malgovernance. This Ebola crisis has greatly exacerbated internal political tensions within these countries. It provoked upheaval in, in many settings. Think the Liberia um, West Point slum scenarios. Um, and, and exposed really a popular alienation in, in these countries that, that have experienced um, very devastating civil war and, and trauma. And of course, we give a nod to, to the root cause being also that this virus has, has terrifying characteristics um, that you know well. Um, it's in a new region, yes, uh, and it's also in densely populated urban centers um, that, that has been a great challenge to control given all these features together. So in this last week, what's been going on, I know that you can tell, if not because you're going to the WHO uh, 
updates regularly by the fact that there are fewer headlines around this epidemic, that things are coming under some improvement. The, the, the peak of the curve has, has definitely come down in all three countries of the most intense transmission. But in the last week, there were still 100 cases. Um, most were in Sierra Leone, uh, where, where transmission continues uh, to, to be pretty intense in the capital city. Um, there um, were 18 cases that were identified post-mortem. So that's a big miss. Um, the, the, in, the efforts in the region are to get people in early for diagnosis and, and isolation. But if you're identifying them post-mortem, you've, you've missed the point. There's been a lot of transmission already from those cases. Still reporting unsafe burials. Um, and, and then something that's fairly ominous, especially to, to those working in the field, um, are the increasing security incidents. This is encompassed about 10 reports a week, at least, of violence against healthcare workers and some of the contact investigation teams, rock throwing. Um, MSF had a facility burned down and a car burned. Um, people are avoiding isolation and quarantine. Some very tragic stories of, of people um, hiding their ill loved ones and, and even hiding the bodies. Um, and, and then intentional propagation of false rumors, generally for political purpose. So th this is a, a commonly shown graphic about um, how, how each country's faring uh, overall. Um, of course, Guinea, Sierra, Liberia, and Sierra Leone are the hardest hits. Sierra Leone with the most number of cases in the most recent tally, um, and then the smattering across uh, the other uh, countries that encompass the nine who have been impacted by this epidemic. So let's talk about the global health principles that have been operative or not in this Ebola response. Um, here it is. So this is like, you know, the, the, the the very uninteresting cover <laughs> of, of, of this oft, uh, you know, uh, pulled document, the Ebola response roadmap, the roadmap, um, and and it came out not too long after, 20 days after the declaration of the public health emergency of international concern. Um, it's there's been a situation update from it, but I'm going to keep referring to this because it is still actually the operative manual. But, but don't be fooled. It's not as though we think that this is the end all. This is, this is the complete story. And, and there are other sources of information that we have. I, I just love driving around and, and seeing things that feel a little surreal in country. But like, you know, this, this broken down van with the um, completely flat. I didn't know tires could get quite that flat, you know, all four of them. But in God we trust. It just, it just feels so, um, you know, sad, right? Um, so let me talk about the, the global health principles. We've already hit these, so congratulations, right? I'm going to weave that in. You trust me. Um, the first one, address gender-related inequalities and disparities. Um, I had not thought of that as a priority within the response, um, but, but uh, let's, let's start there. What do we know? Um, we do have recent data doing um, uh, sex uh, disease incidents that, that suggest in all three countries that there is no significant difference in the incidence between men and women. So in Guinea, the incidence per 100,000 population, 27 versus 29, 142 versus 141. It would be hard to come up with closer numbers in, in this world of bad reporting. And then Sierra Leone, also 180 and 188 per 100,000 population. So it looks like there's not a disparity in how the disease is, is affecting the population gender-wise. But there are misconceptions um, that seem to preferentially impact women in their community. So um, in a knowledge, attitudes, practice, and belief that was done first in August and then repeated in October to see how people's beliefs and practices were changing over time, um, I think it was, it was very clear and reassuring that these misconceptions are decreasing, but they persist. This is just a couple of examples from that. A third of people 
believe that saltwater bathing prevents Ebola. A quarter believe that Ebola is transmitted freely through the air. So um, it, it's sometimes hard to conceptualize that people believe it so strongly, given that there is so much education out there. And, and I know several of you have, have been to the region and know that the billboards and the posters and the bumper stickers and the t-shirts and all that. And yet, um, these very basic messages are not percolating through. And in fact, the, the knowledge shown in this particular um, knowledge, attitudes, practice, and belief was significantly lower for those less than 15, but also for women. So statistically significantly lower, we need to reach women with improved education so that they can lead in their communities um, this response. So the roadmap talks about a phase one response. Let's start there. Um, the first thing that feels obvious to everyone is you have to be able to diagnose Ebola, right? It looks like a flu illness in the beginning, and, and there's a lot of things in the differential diagnosis against that. Is it malaria? Is it typhoid? Is it everything else? Um, so the efforts to establish laboratories are well documented. Um, so I think that it projects well enough. Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia have a, a rather strategic layout of laboratories. Some of them are mobile. Um, some of them are makeshift. Some of them are put into standing facilities. But if you look at who's running them, you know, basically it's all the US and the UK and, and a couple of other European countries who, who have established these. They are all based on polymerase chain reaction, nucleic acid amplification test um, that takes about three hours to run but the challenge is getting the patient tested, right? Getting the blood drawn safely, getting the blood to that laboratory, uh, and somehow getting the result back to the clinician and back to the patient. We do do monitoring and evaluation of this. Um, there it is, see? Um, where the, the goal is to get 100% of samples tested within one day of collection. Um, that's the goal, that's the target. Um, and, it looks pretty good in, in Guinea, in Liberia, maybe less so in Sierra Leone, um, under pretty heroic conditions of full personal protective equipment. Um, a lot of resource goes into establishing the, the safe operation of these HEPA-filtered hoods and et cetera, putting healthcare workers at some risk during the operation of these tests. Um, but this is not how we hope we go forward with regards to diagnosis of disease. Um, this is not sustainable. Um, and in fact, there's some really good news just this week. See, hot off the presses, how could I put this into a objective? Um, the antigen rapid test has been now approved. So first off, I'd say it's, it's noteworthy that the, the World Health Organization has established an emergency assessment and use process. So we, we can't do business as usual and just wait for tests to march through their pipeline and come to market. We need these urgently. So we're weighing, you know, not having an amount of information about any test, tool, vaccine, uh, or medicine, um, and yet needing to get help to people who are um, suffering tremendously. So they have established this with, with a careful attention to ethics and, and a, a, a real open process. And the first diagnostic has come through. So it's an immunochromatographic immunoassay for qualitative detection of, of an Ebola antigen. So that means it's you know positive or negative. It doesn't tell you how positive or negative like um, PCR can. Um, and it can be used on whole blood. That's good, because that's a finger stick. Plasma and serum, that's less good. That's, that's true phlebotomy. Um, results can come in 15 minutes. It's, it's considered very easy to perform, although um, the healthcare worker who collects it has to be in full PPE. Um, and then the laboratorian still has to conduct this test or is advised to conduct this test under a hood, but not in their full PPE. Okay, so that, that's all right. How does it perform, though? Um, compared to PCR, sensitivity, 92%. Specificity, 85%. 
I don't, I don't like that very much. I was a little surprised by the low number on specificity um, because the risk is, and, and the, the moral challenge we have when we engage with, T, with Ebola, I said TB, Ebola suspects um, <laughs> uh, who are presenting to our Ebola treatment centers is we don't want to admit people who don't have Ebola because we may give them Ebola by admitting them if they don't have it because these, um, these facilities, these Ebola treatment centers, are a place where disease clearly transmits. So we have to be very careful to only admit those who are true suspects. And a specificity like this isn't giving me a lot of confidence. And I don't mean to be critical, but so. And then they have this crazy statement, you know, like results should be confirmed with PCR. Oh, so we're back to square one. We still need all these mobile labs and these, you know, high tech whatevers. And then what do you tell the patient while they're waiting at your triage center? Uh, well, we still have to wait, not three hours, people. You know, I saw, you, I showed you the metric, but by the time. That, that, that percentage was the test run in the day, but getting it back to inform patient care takes a lot longer. So, so this is a cumbersome business, and, and we're back to crazy algorithms that, that are very hard to teach, very hard to operate. There's some good news that several other companies are bringing to market these rapid diagnostic tests. And there, the goal would be to, yes, pinprick, but also saliva. So think about the HIV rapid test, and this would be a huge step forward for the safety of the healthcare worker, not having to do a phlebotomy or a finger stick. So that's some new information for you. The phase one response part two is case management, patient management. Intuitively, this is to um, avoid transmission in the community. That, that's what's made sense to everybody, is to take these folks out of their community um, and isolate them. And then part two is, is to hope that they do better than they would in their home setting. Um, the three ways that um, we approach case management um, formally within the roadmap are Ebola treatment centers or units. Let me just make a moment. The ETCs and ETUs, so this is going to be my lingo going forward. ETCs and ETUs are the same thing, but ETCs are what Sierra Leone call it, and ETUs are what Liberia and Guinea call it for the most part, but they say it in French and it sounds a lot better. Um, there's also community care centers, uh, CCCs, when there's no available ETC or ETU bed. Um, uh, Luai Kailani had been engaged with Save the Children International to, to develop some of these, and I hope that you'll hear from him as well on, on some of his experience, which was um, you know, great. Is he here, by the way? Oh, darn him. Um, so then there are the screen and refer units, the SRUs. I know this is an alphabet soup. I'm sorry for that. These are triage areas within non-ETC healthcare settings. So this is where a hospital that's been closed for six months or eight months because of the Ebola epidemic is opening an area where people might come to be ruled in or out for Ebola, sent to the Ebola treatment center, or admitted for emergency services. I never expected that the more tragic aspect of, of work within the Ebola treatment center would be um, uh, turning away people who test negative because there's nowhere else to get care. So a child who's seizing with cerebral malaria or a mother who's nine months pregnant and bleeding or any of it, there's nowhere to go. And you'll see pictures of the Ebola treatment center um, that it's in the middle of, looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. And, and really you bring people to the fence and, and you send them away. And, and this is a hard thing that all of us grappled with in, in these settings. So opening up these healthcare facilities feels so imperative now as a partner. Our distant fourth way of managing Ebola patients is, is through home-based care, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to see pictures in the press anymore of, of people who are forced to take care of their family members at home using makeshift PPE. Like this, this woman was famous in the, I think in the BBC news, um, 
she nursed her family, some, some to health and some through death, um, using garbage bags to create her own PPE and, and this mask that she used for um, weeks of care. So that, that's not where we want to land. <clears throat> so the Ebola treatment centers look like this on the map through the three countries of, of, of high intense transmission. The green ones are open, the blue ones are under construction, and given the turn in the epidemic, um, a lot of the ones that are blue are you know, not going forward to full capacity, given that these are tremendously challenging to open, to run, to staff, et cetera. So I want to highlight this one. This is Lunsar uh, in, in uh, Port Loco uh, County in Sierra Leone, uh, where, where I was engaged. And when I first deployed with the International Medical Corps, where IMC, um, we were still at a building phase. I didn't go to build, but, but um, we were indeed setting up um, these the settings, rolling beds in and taking, you know, sorting out the kinds of PPE that were there, testing the seams of some of the PPE, et cetera. So really setting up the ETC there um, and, and experiencing the tense security situation for, for people who are desperate for a place to go and to bring their family members when they're ill. Um, we quickly had to establish security at the building site because um, there, there grew up a small village of people waiting so that they could get a bed, some not understanding that there would not be care for anything other than um, Ebola. So, so a lot of sad stories there. Um, and uh, imagine getting this stuff into the region. You know, you saw some big heavy equipment that, that was brought in from the mining and mining industry in South Africa. Um, and, and it did feel like a very military response to set up these hospitals. So this, this shows you an example of the logistics hub in Monrovia uh, and the forward logistics bases, uh, each shown here. This is how do you move stuff around the country to set these up. Um, here's an aerial view of the Lunsar, Port Loco, Sierra Leone, ETC, where, where I worked. And I know you've all seen pictures like this in, um, in the media. Um, but I feel really fairly affectionately toward it when I, when I look at it and could walk you through um, the fact that the town is here. It's a small town, but people would come in through here, um, undergo triage in this area, whereas the healthcare workers um, would don, put on their PPE here, see them at triage, and then either admit, either reject, uh, it, or uh, admit to the suspect, probable, or confirmed wards. Uh, only, only test positive patients go in the confirmed wards. And practically, when we talk about probable or suspect, suspect or probable, the difference is whether the patient is wet or dry. So this is a kind of a syndromic approach to trying to reduce transmission when we're not sure whether somebody has malaria or salmonella or typhoid or whatever, and the test is coming. If they're dry, they're not having vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera, they go here and, and otherwise there um, with the hope of, of not transmitting too much within the facility itself. These are the doffing stations. Um, and, and remember, it takes 30 to 40 minutes to doff safely um, after being in, in the unit for about an hour. Um, slides never show heat and humidity, but, but trust me, it, it's, it's pretty hot and humid there. Um, as of February 18th, uh, 159 patients had been admitted, 103 tested positive, and um, 37 had been discharged survivors. Um, a lot of times, these survivors actually um, become employees of, of the ETC because they're not always welcome back into their communities. Um, there's a lot of stigma yet. People don't understand about um, whether they're still infectious or not. And, and so employing them has been an incredibly useful engagement for them and also valuable to, to the team. Um, so this Ebola treatment center 
is owned, in fact, by the Ministry of Health. This is the, the turnover day, the day we opened. Um, and this is the president showing up in sort of like golf gear, it looks like to me, um, and with his, with his troops. Um, and, and we had the fun kind of strange experience of taking his temperature before he was allowed into the unit per protocol. Um, so, so there was a, just, just a very public aspect of, of what was going on. Um, the government was very supportive, not able to contribute much to the building, but, but clearly in ownership. And this gets to, here, here we are again with my little Ebola picture, that, that we are looking to create sustainable country-owned health systems. You see, I went over sustainable pretty fast because I, I'm sure we have not achieved that. And nobody believes that these um, um, Ebola treatment centers are sustainable in the long term without extensive, with, you know, really um, exuberant international support. It's estimated at about a hundred, uh, sorry, about a million dollars a month to operate these. Um, and they're a combination of tents and non-permanent structures, so, so who knows what, what they would be good for in the long term anyway. So this is the Lunsar Ebola tra treatment center as discussed, and when that was up and running, I, I moved uh, to the um, McKenney ETC, the same story. So in between Lunsar, let me just go back. In between Lunsar and McKenney, it's about an hour and a half drive, um, but there are a lot of roadblocks along the way. So, so this shows you one of the roadblocks where you have to have your temperature taken by the military and, and the cordons along the way make it very um, cumbersome to move between. Um, there's long lines of people, some of whom have fever, and that's why they weren't allowed to cross. So to me, this always struck me as a sort of dangerous place to have to stop. Um, here's McKinney. It's the fourth largest city in um, Sierra Leone, and um, you know, not too easy on the eyes. It's, it's a pretty small city, uh, and yet, yet it is a, a real population hub of a, kind of a sprawling village, village settings. This is the main square in town. And here's the aerial view of the um, McKenney ETC Bullet Treatment Center. So similar kinds of tents, right? What's different about this one is, is that it was built in partnership with the National Health Service of the United Kingdom. So, so they helped IMC to build, um, and, and they also are the ones who staff it. So they send laboratorians and clinicians to come and work there. And this is, a, this is an example of a lot of partnerships that were just sort of thrown together. Some, some matches are made in heaven and others are made in hell. So, so it's not the IMC and, and, NH, and the NHS really wanted to work together, but this was the reality of an emergency response, um, a complicated um, MOU um, to, to generate, to say the least. Um, as of February 18th, they, they've screened 167 patients, 41 tested positive, um, 21 discharged survivors. You'll notice that the um, rate of those testing positive is a lot lower at this um, ETC than, than in Lunsar, and that's because um, the Lunsar ETC was largely established to relieve the holding centers, so people who, who tested positive in some of these horrible community centers were then brought, in. so they were known positive coming in, so that's why the numbers are really different. So we've talked about gender-related, um, the fact that we <clears throat> are not sustainable in, the, in this health system, and we, we have some partnerships going, and we're researching, and we're innovating, we're monitoring and evaluating. And in a, like, a stunning moment of <clears throat> non-partnership, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul Farmer visited the Port Loco ETC and, and made these comments to uh, the New York Times, which rattled a lot of people's cages. Um, MSF is not doing enough, um, said Dr. Paul Farmer. What if the fatality rate isn't the virulence of disease, but the mediocrity of, of medical delivery? Um, so I, I know that things are taken out of context in the press and that 
um, it's, it's not fair really even to, to put this onto a slide. I certainly don't want anyone to put any of my, my comments um, onto a slide in, in isolation. Um, but, but I do think it distracted a fair bit from, from the real issues at hand as people argued about who's doing what right and who's doing what wrong. Um, I, I do believe what he meant to say, what, what I meant to say, was that we all need to provide better supportive care to increase survival. And this led to a discussion of maximally utilized supportive therapy, must therapy. Um, could there be a relationship between poor quality care and people's reluctance to seek it in a hot, raggedy Ebola unit? So this was from the New York Times to the Washington Post two weeks later. Um, and I think really what, what he looked to achieve is, is really that we need to work together. It's a partnership, right? We're, we're all trying to use intravenous, sometimes intraosseous fluids to, to support people through, through the depths of their illness. Um, and, and so better, better to be working together in, in a clear partnership. Um, it does raise, well, what are we accomplishing with the ETCs everywhere with that cost and with that risk and, and with that effort? Um, this just came out this week, I think, so just to show you again how, how my slides can't possibly be polished because I'm putting them together pretty quickly at this point. Um, so in infectious disease and epidemic, we love pictures like this, and I don't know if you glaze over and it strikes fear into your heart, but it's, it's, it's obviously pretty easy to understand. And in the biggest bubble in the middle is, is, is the source patient for some chain of transmission. So um, the, the number in here is the date written in typical uh, backwards <laughs> Uh, format. So this is uh, March 12th. This patient became symptomatic, and, and this is what happened, who, who he transmitted to. So in, in this paper um, that, that published in Lancet ID this week, um, they, they did meticulous case finding and, and investigation around, and the, the different kinds of boxes here, the boxes are healthcare workers, the circles are non-healthcare workers, the colors reflect where the patient came from or where, where they lived. But um, look at the tragedy of, of this particular um, circle. So this patient on, on July 1st became symptomatic, sought healthcare in a traditional healthcare setting, and um, transmitted to all of those healthcare workers who, who then secondarily transmitted to others, um, plus, plus family members and et cetera. So this, this kind of you know, exquisitely detailed epidemiology gives us a lot of information that we can extrapolate toward disease control. So. Um, we can say, not just intuitively, that Ebola treatment centers break the chain of transmission, um, but, but in fact, it's shown here that before we had any Ebola treatment centers, the reproduction number, that is the number of people to which each patient transmits, uh, is above one in the communities. So when the reproduction number is above one, an epidemic is propagated, and when it's below one, it, it can't propagate. It, it, has, it comes under control. Um, so it, it's the community where, where transmission is occurring, not within the hospitals, which were implicated, um, and, and not so much within the funerals. This, this is where ET, ETCs are in place now. So thankfully, we can see healthcare workers are not contributing to the epidemic propagation, but, but it still remains community. Um, those who, who have um, their care in an ETC or an ATU um, do not 
generate a meaningful <coughs> um, reproduction rate. So, so this is great evidence. I find this, these two graphics a little counterintuitive because it's a reduction in the case number percentage. So um, you know, this reduction is going up. So you know, things are getting better with, with the proportion of people who are admitted to the hospital. And I just crafted it in a slightly different way, which is according to the simulations made from this epidemiologic study, a 10% increase in the rates of admission to a safe healthcare facility such as an ETC would reduce the length of these transmission chains by a quarter. So, so that, that's great information for us to go forward with confidence, even if these are not sustainable. Um, the formatting here will persist. I couldn't make it stop. Um, this is a review, right? You, you've seen these. These are the three ways that we manage patients in, in those settings, and sometimes we resort to home-based care. Um, the reluctance here, of course, uh, is, is only valid if, if we can actually staff the above. So it's limited by the number of healthcare workers available. Um, and, and that's why I think what's so tragic for so many reasons is, is the impact that this epidemic has had on the healthcare worker force in an already challenged setting. So pre Ebola, it was still one of the lowest healthcare worker ratio to, to population countries in the world. Um, but you can see that the tally of um, cases and deaths of healthcare workers is, is, is just um, daunting for so many reasons. And in fact, there were three new healthcare worker infections in this past week. So this is still going on. Um, the, the, the appropriate question is well, how are these healthcare workers getting infected? Are these Ebola treatment centers? dangerous for healthcare workers to work in? Um, how are they getting infected? And there's a nice study from MSF out um, in, in informal form without a reference here. But as they looked at their numbers of 720 expat healthcare workers, that is those who are not living in the community but are living in, in the secure, secluded housing provided by the ETCs. Um, since March 2014, only three have been infected, and they've investigated them pretty clearly, or pretty intensely, as you might imagine. Two were thought to be infected while uh, unprotected at the triage center. So in the beginning, people weren't fully in PPE when, when they got started in triage. That's changed now. Um, and then the third patient, it's really not clear how they became infected. Of the 3,200 national staff engaged in this um, uh, response, working within the ETCs, there have been 24 infections, so much higher. <clears throat> And, and the vast majority of those, each of whom was investigated, um, appeared to have been infected at home or in side jobs that they had at night. So this was very reassuring to a lot of us that, um, yes, it's, it's a disaster that the healthcare workers are, are impacted so, so disproportionately in this epidemic, but at least we're not um, propagating that through the Ebola treatment center model. Um, so, so many aspects of, of the healthcare worker loss is tragic, um, and, and this is where I engaged um, and, and engaged colleagues here. So I wanted to let you know that we have a group called DEVOTE, um, the Dartmouth Ebola Virus Outreach Team and Educators. Okay, so, <laughs> phew. Um, uh, Laura Chevy is a master at acronyms, if anybody needs one. Um, so she had a lot of different options, some of which were you know, really funny. This was the best one we could come up with. So, so the devotees, as they're called, are you know, shown here. These are the most active members of our group um, who have been working together on the so-called MATCO, the Multi-Agency Training Collaborative. Um, so this is an International Medical Corps initiative to provide a standard uh, education platform for any person's going to work in an Ebola epidemic setting. It's three days of didactics and simulations. 
and then four to seven days, depending on comfort and, and, and physical skills, of hot zone training, where you're actually working alongside um, a doctor within the, or a nurse within the, the setting. Um, it, it was an interesting concept within the training development that really the primary goal that we have to keep coming back to is that this is a curriculum to keep you safe, you know, not to save more lives or whatever. So the mantras around this um, were uh, things like, there's no such thing as an Ebola emergency. Like, we never run to a patient who's seizing or, you know, it's all about keeping you safe. And that was a fascinating um, tweak to, to the typical clinician mindset. Um, um, so, so a thousand times a day you'll hear within the ETC, um, slow, slow, safe, safe. You know, don't make fast movements. Make sure you're an arm's length from everyone. You know, even your buddy, um, and 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 the like. Um, it was so nice to see some of, some of my friends here within in this audience, even. And the inclination that we have culturally is, is for a hug or so. But what we do there is elbola. You know, so so you just like, touch the elbow. Um, so so um, there's a lot of training to do um, to to change how we operate within these incredibly unusual and and, and horrible settings. Um, who, who did we train? Uh, who are we training? 90% are national staff. So this is the part of sustainability and um, partnership that um, these are folks uh, who, who have come through their own um, educational journeys that are not of similar quality to, to a lot of the, national, the international staff, to be honest. 10% were international humanitarian workers from Pakistan and India and Cuba and wherever else. Um, and, and within this curriculum, we had everybody in the same room in the beginning, doctors, nurses, the WASH staff, like housekeepers, water, sanitation, and hygiene workers, psychosocial workers, outreach, social mobilizers, and then site managers. Everybody got the same information. We were all on the same page. I had a lot of interesting uh, encounters with some of the, especially the expat doctors, the humanitarian workers, and first the, the bus arrived to the training center, and um, one doctor from Pakistan got I will not be trained with nurses. Oh, wow. Get your seat in the butt. You know, you just get in that seat. Um, it, it, overcoming a lot of people, um, misconceptions or preconceptions, I don't know. I show you this picture, first of all, because of the horrible uniform we wore, um, but, but really because um, this, these trainings took place in whatever settings were available and convenient for, for those being trained. So we, we would go to some of the hospitals that were, had been closed for, for months, um, and, and we had to bring a generator and the fuel for that generator and, and hope that we could figure out how to make this thing spin, for example, um, and, and make the, our own PowerPoint projector work. But I always had a, um, an entire portfolio of all the talks in case things failed. Um, and I found myself having to you know, really adopt a very animated um, style of teaching, which you can see I don't have, um, <laughs> um, because these rooms are full of people um, who are, are in close quarters, and the didactic three days is hot and it's long, and, and, and trying to put in some simulation and certainly some animation to, to what's going on. I want you also to, to think about the fact that almost everybody in this room is mourning. So the cultural changes, everybody has a story of the people that they've lost. And so um, teaching under those circumstances um, was, was a great challenge and also a great satisfaction to me. Um, I started by saying, you know, it's sometimes hard to pay attention in eight hours of lecture in a super duper hot room, and and yet um, people are <laughs> a lot of times on the edge of their seat because the message is, how are you going to avoid 
having happened to you what you saw happen to your colleagues or your family or your friends or whatever. So people are very interested, and, and you need to only you know, kind of wake them up with a moment of your life depends on this information. So I, I had a unique opportunity for, for a very unusual kind of teaching going on. Some, some of these are survivors themselves, so people who had um, worked in their own healthcare settings um, and, and acquired Ebola and then came to work in ours. It's always an exciting day when they first don their PPE and um, everybody wants their picture taken, you know, they sort of, which I think is kind of funny because you can't really tell who's who, right? Um, but but I'm, I walk it around, I take a lot of pictures because that's what everybody's asking for. They don't ask for the picture, which is kind of funny too. But um, So what you saw in the previous was the so-called World Health Organization, the WHO, PPE style, the ensemble. But what we use is the MSF style, um, which is more expensive, more aggressive, and the goal is no skin exposed. So to achieve that is, 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 is challenging. Um, and so lots of simulation. Um, we, we generally would take people through donning and doffing, taking off pretty carefully. So when, when the donning happens, the first thing they have to do is then walk around the building. In this case, it was a closed midwifery school. Um, this picture I chose particularly because you can see the sweat starting. This is like three minutes into the walk. You know, that you are sloshing sweat in this. And I liked Paul Farmer's uh, quote here: "Clinicians and other staff in the hot zone can barely stand more than a couple hours inside the centers. Their protective gear sloshing with sweat, rubber boots brimming with a foul mix of perspiration and chlorine. So it's." It's 0.5% chlorine being sprayed everywhere. So not only are you wearing this, you're also breathing in this sort of toxic stuff. And you, you can't shake the smell from your, your, yourself at the end of the day. Um, so I thought that that was fairly vivid. So we have simulation center where they can practice drawing blood on dummies, et cetera. Um, walking around, yes, um, sort of achieving the habit of, of having your hands out in front of you and um, making sure you're an arm's length from everybody. Uh, here, here's an ambulance simulation. How, what do you, how do you manage a patient or three or four or five patients in the back of an ambulance, some of whom can't walk? Like, what's, what's a safe way to move them? Um, so this is just a simulation, hence the monitors there. Um, here's a, a survivor who's, who's being helpful um, with regards to a triage exercise. So um, simulating the kinds of answers you get for people who don't want to be admitted to your ETC in some circumstances. Well, I don't know. Yeah, no, not, not so much fever and the like. So, so we work hard to make this very uh, as authentic as we can. The blood draw within the ETC. And now we move on to a phase two response. <laughs> We're out of time. Um, <laughs> but, but there's a few things to mention here. Um, the focus shift from slowing transmission to ending the epidemic. The pattern is now recurrent pop-up outbreaks where sufficient capacity to isolate, treat, and bury patients exists. There's less focus on building these things uh, and more on new public health infrastructure. So um, I clearly have mistimed and, and need to skip on. I have to make one mention before I ask any, answer any questions or you know, see what questions you have. Um, I want to show you a picture of somebody within our devote team. There she is. So um, Laura Chevy is there now. So I've, uh, many of you probably know her as a hospitalist now turned um, infectious disease fellow. Um, so uh, I, I have the great pleasure of engaging her to work uh, through the MATCO curriculum and, and toward restoring healthcare function in the region. Um, so this is a day of her first simulation in, in, in the unit. Um, and, and she just really 
breathed a breath of life to, to this for me because of her enthusiasm and her energy. And so I'm grateful for her willingness to, to come and, and to be there for uh, six weeks as well. Jesse will follow her, Jesse uh, Lese, um, another ID fellow. So um, I, I want to encourage you that we really have a team that is engaged in um, One Health in the long term of this. Um, I'll make mention of the fact that there was a, a funding opportunity announcement recently by the CDC. Um, and I, I wrote this grant for International Medical Corps in November, and um, it has been uh, successful. Uh, so, so we have um, a five-year engagement in the region, and, and this is a bit of a recruitment right now to see um, if anybody would be interested to join us with Devote and, and to be meaningfully engaged in this uh, outbreak response, even from afar. So I think that's probably all I have time for, and I'm sorry that I have gone over. Um, but you can see I have a, a lot to say <laughs> and a lot of enthusiasm. And, and I, I really do want to start by um, or say thanks to, to the support that I received from so many colleagues, especially my family, shown here. And I want to make mention of the fact that the media circus around my first trip um, was, was very unexpected to me. I show you this picture um, to tell you that I, I hate it. Um, in part because it makes my belly look big, but, but also because the title here, right? Transitioning to normalcy. And I, I, I guess I tend to detail horrors, but I, I didn't feel as though that was the, the communication objective I meant to make. So I want to say it very explicitly. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to engage. And again, I, 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 I'm, I think that it's something we all are trying to figure out through root cause analyses uh, regionally, globally, and, and personally. Um, how, how vulnerable are we, and, and, and what is our role in response? So let, let me say, I, I don't like that title, and I, I, I more have the memory of, of the incredible relationships that can be built and, and were built and um, going forward toward keeping um, the healthcare workers safe in the region. So thank you very much for your attention. There's time for a few reflections or questions. Yes, I, I was working in Liberia, I think, in 2007. Um, the refugee crisis from the UN was just moving in. And um, I was impressed with the devastation of the medical school in the world. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between medical education and schools in these countries. And how they have been able or unable to respond to any sorts of crisis. I don't have a lot of data facts for you, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I do know that the schools are not open, you know, that they, they have not been able to recover. Um, we, we certainly had folks who, who came in with certificates from those schools from whatever level they had to stop at and train them accordingly. Um, but, but there's been a very poor coordination of response through the own through the standing resources in country. In fact, the International Medical Corps um, Treatment Center and Training Center in Liberia is at Nepal, and it's housed in, in the foremost university, which has been there. So the, the Cunningham University is, is where a pretty full central is for, for that target region. Any other questions? Yes. Well, you did a really great job of this. Thank you. The, one of the things you touched on briefly is sort of the terrible situation of the basic healthcare system for everything else. Yeah. Do, do, do you think that 
with all this publicity and stuff, things are going to be better for librarians and Sierra Leoneans just in terms of getting basic care, or is that going to <coughs> I, I do think so. I mean, what an incredible opportunity. There's been $324 million recently allocated by Congress toward response, more than $4 billion promised globally. I mean, this is just the right opportunity. And again, um, this, this small multi-million dollar grant from CDC that, that we have an opportunity to participate in, I think, could certainly take your expertise and your experience toward building back better. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a teachable moment, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Could you comment on vaccine? One minute away. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are two vaccine strategies that are now um, being trialed. So one is a prime boost and, and, and one is a um, single dose. Um, they're both recombinant vaccines and the NIH is running one trial and um, uh, CDC is essentially running the, the prime boost. Um, so they're our shots to people right now. Um, they've, they've gone through phase one where it appears their safety and, and the, the phase two trials are now underway with the priority for the healthcare workers. Um, so, so we'll see where that lands. Um, it's funny how you can't, you can't be sad about it, but, but the, the whole trial has been derailed in Liberia because there's so few cases in the last weeks. So, so the vaccine efforts are really going to um, a region where at risk countries, but, but it's here only on especially Oh, I was just going to follow up on that. Is it, is the, is it no but protective immunity really is? No. Um, you know, there's, there's been a vaccine on the shelf for a long time, but it wasn't of interest because nobody saw this country. Um, so, so they had, had done some preliminary zero surveys um, of the survivors, for example, who are thought to be protected and immune for life. So there's some idea of it, but um, they don't have any strict numbers. Other thoughts, other questions, comments? I'm cognizant of the time. I want to just say that, you know, for many of us who are up here in the woods of New Hampshire, we don't think that we're very engaged in global health. We are. And we thank Lisa and you, Elizabeth, and so many others who are here for all of the global work. I also want to do a shout out that we have two wonderful clinicians from Rwanda with us, and they will be with us for two months. And that's part of a global exchange that we're working on in working in a partnership. We have other work, obviously, Brian, your work in Haiti and, and our medical grand rounds that have done with, with patient clinicians. There, there is so much going on. I think we should take great pride in the things that you're working on. And thank you for being here with us today, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.